You're listening to Counter Moves, a Christian review of ideas shaping church and culture. On Counter Moves, we interview some of today's most incisive thinkers on the ideas and trends affecting Christian witness in a secular age. Our mission is summed up in the words of Carl F.H. Henry. If the church fails to apply the central truth of Christianity to social problems correctly, someone else will do so incorrectly. Well, welcome to the latest episode of Counter Moves. And on this episode, we're going to talk about something that I think is really, really important that often goes unnoticed and ignored in the evangelical church. And to discuss that topic, we're going to be talking about it in the context of the 50th anniversary of something that's very, very important, because 2018 is the 50th anniversary of Humanae Vitae, which was Pope Paul VI encyclical reaffirming the Catholic Church's teachings on contraception. And it might seem odd to spend an episode of this podcast talking about a Roman Catholic encyclical, but when we explore this conversation about contraception in particular and Christian sexual ethics in general, important issues emerge that we need to discuss. And the important question is why? Uh, It's because historians have argued that industrialized contraception is one of the most defining moments in world history, and particularly in the 20th century. And we want to discuss the ramifications of kind of introducing industrialized contraception into the culture. And to have that conversation, we're going to be having it with a Baptist ethicist who's a good friend of mine, Evan Lino. And Evan Lino serves as the Associate Professor of Ethics at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is the Bobby L. and Janice Eklund Chair of Stewardship. He's the Director of the Land Center for Cultural Engagement and Director of the Center for Biblical Stewardship, again, at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. He holds his PhD in Christian Ethics from Southeastern Seminary. He holds a Master of Divinity from Southeastern and a Bachelor of Arts in Communication from Mississippi College. He is also, I'm very proud to say, uh, a research fellow with the Research Institute of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and he has a lot of interests in the fields of uh, marital ethics, family ethics, sexual ethics, and the integration of theology and ethics. And Evan, before we get going, uh, before my first major question, I want to read a quote. I want you to unpack this quote for us for a little bit. The quote you write in a January 2018 article at First Things, titled Protestants and Contraception, you wrote this. As married couples become accustomed to the use of birth control, separating the procreative and unitive functions of sex, they can begin to view one another as means to sexual satisfaction rather than as covenant partners who are called by God to bring new life into the world. The child draws husband and wife together. They couldn't have conceived one without the other. While sex for pleasure involves two individuals seeking their own satisfaction, sex for procreation involves two individuals coming together in the most intimate way to produce another human being. Evan, first off, welcome to Counter Moves. And then secondly, I just want you to unpack uh, what you mean in that provocative quote. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with uh, you and talk with you today. What I'm trying to do in that in that 
particular paragraph is really lay out the idea that in large part we've forgotten in Protestant circles, and that's the connection between the the union, the one flesh union in a Genesis 2.24 context mm-hmm. of uh, the marriage relationship and particularly within the context of the sexual relationship within marriage and the procreative aspect of the sexual relationship within marriage. We have long since kind of separated those two, I, I think as a result of the contraceptive mentality that we have in our in mm-hmm. our society today that we have accepted for the most part as Protestants. And, and so what we've done is we've detached those two so much that we don't ever think of union and procreation as being two sides of the same coin, which is exactly what Paul VI was doing in the papal encyclical Humanae Vitae um, 50 years ago. He, he was attempting to demonstrate that that this is this is the biblical understanding and the historic church's understanding of of the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife, and so that's really what I'm I'm attempting to do is lay out here this idea that no these two things actually go together they're not they're not to be mm-hmm. thought of separately they are one and the same. So if an uncharitable critic were to ask you, so so Dr. Lino, are you saying that Christians need to become Catholic in our ethics in order to be faithful to Scripture. Is that what you're saying? No, that's not what I'm saying. In fact, uh, after writing this uh, this article and it was after it was published, I got responses on both sides. <laughs> um, I had I had a lot of Catholics that said, uh, "Thank you for writing this, but you're not Catholic enough." Right. And then I had Protestants who uh, wrote me and said, uh, "Why are you so Catholic?" Um, so I'm not saying that we have to become Catholic uh, in our in our ethics or our sexual ethics in order to be in order to be biblical. Um, but what I am saying, and and you've studied ethics and and understand this as well, is that in many respects Protestants have been late to the game mm-hmm. in the world of ethics, and um, and Catholics have been thinking deeply about ethical issues for centuries, and or really millennia at this point, but. For the most part, Protestants haven't been doing a lot of heavy lifting in the world of ethics, except for, for the most part, in the last 100 years or so. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the reasons why we, we need to be aware of what the Catholics are writing on these things. So I want to go back to Humanae Vitae in particular. I mentioned that 2018 is the 50th anniversary of this very famous encyclical where Pope Paul VI reaffirmed the Catholic Church's teachings on contraception. Um, I, I would just, as someone who's studied this issue, can you go into a little bit more detail about what are the contents of this encyclical and, and what are some of the unique arguments? And I know you've already alluded to a few of them, but but what else would someone who's unfamiliar with this encyclical need to know about it? Pope Paul VI is writing this in 1968. Um, so it's really less than a decade after the introduction of uh, the birth control pill, um, and it's it's gaining wide acceptance at this time. Um, and so what what Paul VI is attempting to do is he's he starts out by laying out why this is a question for the church, and why these are new questions, why contraception has raised new questions 
um, or that need to be addressed or, or need to be revisited mm-hmm. in some respects, um, then he, he attempts to lay out uh, what the spiritual and ecclesiological connections are, particularly for the Catholic Church, but, um, but just in general, uh, thinking of from an ecclesiastical standpoint. And then he lays out a, a, a fairly robust view of uh, sexual ethics mm-hmm. uh, from the standpoint of, uh, of biblical sexual ethics appealing to Genesis 1 and 2 as his starting point. Um, he talks about uh, parenthood, what it means to be a parent, what responsible parenthood means. And then he goes into the, the specific arguments on contraception, drawing on what we just talked about, the, the unity and the procreation aspects faithfulness to God's design, and then he talks about uh, various forms of contraception that the church had declared as uh, unlawful. And then probably the, the most interesting part of the entire encyclical is where he talks about the consequences yeah. of uh, use of artificial contraception. And again, you have to remember, he, this is 1968, right? and the things that he says in 1968 some of these were not even on anyone's radar then. And now you read these and you sit there and you think, wow, he hit every single one of these. And, and his, it was viewed as very extreme right. when, when he initially, when this encyclical initially came out. And now we look at it and say, he nailed every single one of them. He was looking into a crystal ball, in effect. Yeah. And, and you sit there and say, wow, he got that right. And to think 50 years ago, somebody was thinking that is yeah. just amazing. So one of the questions that I have for you, and this is just a good time to, to move it up in the order of them, is are these predictions that Pope Paul VI made in 1968 about what would happen if the continued kind of cultural, industrialized use of, of, of contraception continues? What are some of the things that he feared would happen in society? Yeah, the first one he talks about is um, he believed that it would that it would open up more possibility for marital infidelity. Mm-hmm. So he looks at it because you think about put yourself back fifty, a hundred years, and one uh, there's a number of reasons that we can talk about biblically of why you should remain faithful to your spouse. But certainly one of the consequences that people would have in the back of their minds if they were contemplating adultery would be what happens if the woman in this adulterous relationship gets pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so that would be a consequence to avoid. Um, and what the encyclical is saying is, listen, with the use of widespread contraception that's very effective, that opens up the door to more marital infidelity mm-hmm. simply because there's no longer that concern of someone getting pregnant outside of wedlock. Right. And so that opens up the door. It, he also talks about just a general lowering of moral standards. Hmm. Um, we can talk about that in the context of cohabitation, childbirth outside of wedlock. Those types of things come into play there. Also, uh, I think we can we can go into the and others have made this argument as well. We can go into the whole idea of it open contraceptive sex, so the uh, sexual intercourse that is not procreative in nature actually opens the door to the acceptance of same-sex marriage and same-sex intercourse. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last one that I think is is really pertinent to the, the context that we're living in today in 2018 is he actually makes the case 
that the use of the widespread use of contraception would lead to the objectification of women. Right. And that men right. would no longer view women as as their covenant partner in marriage and the bringing about of new life, they would simply view them as a means of sexual satisfaction. And he he makes this argument both outside of marriage and inside of marriage, you have the possibility Mm -hmm. of the objectification of women. And all we have to do is look look around us today, read the newspaper, watch the news, and the objectification of women is a major issue that we're dealing with in our culture. Right. And and wouldn't you say it's also fair to argue that uh, abortion follows downstream from this as well? So so once, again, that concern for procreation is unlinked from the sexual act and removed from the marital context, uh, you still have a, a greater likelihood of there being unplanned pregnancies. And in some sense, abortion is the last and final and most severe form of contraception. Is that fair to Absolutely. say? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's that's de- certainly fair and and a, really a direct connection because we it changes the mindset of where uh, we begin to see children as products, you know, something that you would manufacture, right? And they can be manufactured at your choosing and at your will w- whenever you want to, or not whenever you want to. You know, you can choose not to have children at the times that you don't deem as convenient. And therefore, children are viewed as a, as a product. And therefore, if a child is conceived at a time that's not convenient, if you're viewing children merely as a product, um, then the reality is you just eliminate that product so and move you, on. So, so you've mentioned that contraception kind of radically redefines what we believe the purpose of sexual intercourse is. And you said that, again, it no longer orders sexual activity towards procreation. So big picture here, if if you were going to kind of let there be one big truth that a listener walks away from this podcast learning, discuss kind of how big and how impactful or consequential is contraception to a philosophy of marital love. Yeah, we've reached the point today where even within the context of marriage, we view the primary purpose of sexual intercourse to be pleasure. Mm -hmm. While pleasure is certainly an aspect of the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife, it's never viewed in Scripture as one of the primary purposes. Some people may go to, you know, Song Solomon or something like that to try to make the case But I think if you look at the whole corpus of a biblical ethic of sexuality, we see really there are are three components to the purposes of sex, and and that's procreation, unity, and marital fidelity. Procreation coming from Genesis 1 and 2, unity coming specifically from Genesis 2.24, and then marital fidelity, a number of places, but 1 Corinthians 7 is a a clear place uh, to go with that. That, that that really forms the the threefold purpose of the sexual relationship within marriage. The historic connection there is to Augustine's right. work on the good of marriage, where he connects those dots with those three purposes. But today, we view sexual intercourse primarily to serve the purpose of pleasure. 
and then it may have some other secondary purposes. I even see this in evangelical writings on sex and sexuality. How so? From from some people that I that I'm friends with and people that I you know generally agree with, but they appeal to pleasure and they elevate pleasure oftentimes up towards the top of the list, and and that's just simply not historically what the church has taught. And I think you there's a struggle there to make the case biblically. So it would be interesting also as a Protestant, in your article, you expressed some disagreements mm-hmm. with Humanae Vitae. And of course, you said that you heard from Catholic readers who said that you're not Catholic enough. So where are these areas as a Protestant ethicist that you disagree with Humanae Vitae? Well, the the first and biggest disagreement, this represented probably the, the biggest feedback that I got from Catholics, was I, I don't view marriage as a sacrament. Right. And I, my response to them was off, you know, I, I was trying to be kind, and, but my responses to them was often to say, you do realize I'm Baptist, right? For me to say <laughs> right. I don't believe marriage is a sacrament should come as no surprise to you whatsoever. But, you know, that's the first one. So marriage is not an efficacious sign of grace. It does not uh, lead towards salvation or provide any type of means of salvation. And so I, I do not fall under the sacramental model of marriage. Um, so that's that's the big one. Mm-hmm. That is a point that the encyclical makes. It is not it is not a substantial point, but it is something. I, again, I wasn't surprised to see it in the encyclical when I first read it because I thought this is a official doctrine of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. I would expect them to say that. Um, so that's the the first big disagreement. The the other disagreement, um, which represented the rest of the criticism that I got from my Catholic friends, was um, well, I think uh, the natural family planning methods are are suitable forms of uh, contraception that don't violate the uh, unitive and procreative purposes of marriage. I, I do make allowance for some other forms of contraception that work exclusively to prevent conception. Mm-hmm. Um, so these would be things like barrier methods um, that, uh, that have to, you know, and this is, I, I want to I couch this a little bit. They have to be conscious decisions, you know, on every, every time they're used, it's a conscious decision to use them. Mm-hmm. Um, and second, um, they have to be evaluated in light of one's marriage and your understanding of your husband or wife, and and so this is not a this is not a okay. This we're just going to use these every time we have intercourse for the next you know eight to ten years. Mm-hmm. This is a, a specific purpose for a specific time, much in the same way that natural family planning would be. Mm-hmm. And the other form would be, which again works to uh, prevent exclusively prevent conception, is sterilization. Now, I, I do not promote sterilization as a form of contraception. What I make allowance for is sterilization in medically necessary circumstances. So, you know, a situation where perhaps a, a pregnancy would exacerbate a, a pre-existing medical condition that could, you know, yeah. ultimately end in death. You know, I think, I think the responsible thing to do at that stage of life would be to say, you know what? Sterilization, sterilization may be our, our best answer to prevent further harm to the life of the mother or, or something like that. And by sterilization, you're referring to something like a 
uh, vasectomy or a tubal ligation. Is that is that fair to say? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, and, and this is where I think listeners would would really want to push back on on the ethicists here. So, let's say you have a thirty nine year old married husband. They've got four kids, and they decide that they're done having children. And they decide the husband decides he is open to having a vasectomy. How do you evaluate the ethics of that? Is that something you're okay with? Um, is that something you would counsel away from? Help us walk through kind of the level of binding the conscience versus non-binding the conscience. Mm-hmm. That would be something I would generally caution against doing. Um, I begin with you know looking at it and saying, okay. God has designed our bodies to function in a very specific way, mm-hmm. um, and your body is functioning properly. And so you're taking an action to intentionally um, undo a properly functioning part of your body. Mm-hmm. This is not like having an appendectomy. You know, right. you're in that situation, your appendix is malfunctioning and could result in your death, um, and so you're going to remove it. In this case, your reproductive system is functioning as God intended, and therefore your desire is to make it no longer function. Second, you know, the this is the hard part where there's no specific, you know, I can't go to a chapter and verse and, and say this is what the Bible says on mm-hmm. it, but I have to ask the question, you know, what constitutes, quote-unquote, being done with having children? You know, where is it our responsibility to determine that we are done? Right. Um, and again, I think a little bit that comes back to this idea of, of autonomy of and self ownership. Yeah, but in, in viewing children as products, right? Um, and and this whole idea that I have I have absolute ownership over my own body, when in reality, you know, that is actually completely undermined in First Corinthians seven, mm-hmm. and. Paul says that, husband, your body is not your own, it's your wife's. Wife, your, your body is not your own, it's your husband's. And so we, we are not completely autonomous individuals, particularly when we get married. And, uh, and so, I, again, it's, just, it's one of those things. I can't, I can't say that someone who says we don't want any more children is, is, has a sinful attitude right. or anything like that. But I, I do want to ask, well, how do you reach that point? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what's the... What's the biblical understanding of that conclusion? And, and how does that square with you know, passages like Psalm 127 and 128 that talk about the, the joy of, uh, of having children and, um, and what they are, you know, what they mean to you? You know, yeah. I'm, I'm the 40-year-old dad with four kids. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'm the... <laughs> But having this mentality regarding contraception also doesn't mean you have to have 17 children either. Sure. You know, at some point, you know, the natural cycles of life run its course and um, the likelihood of conceiving a child in your 40s diminishes drastically. Right. Um, just, it's not impossible, but it, but it does diminish. So my next question is, is more of an observation, but I just want to throw it out here and kind of get your thoughts on it. And it's this issue of an uncritical embrace of contraception amongst evangelicals. And I, you know, I got married when I was 21, and uh, I think my experience was pretty similar to most other evangelicals when they got married, was 
well, of course you use contraception. Why wouldn't you use contraception? You know, you want to finish mm-hmm. school, you want to finish the master's degree, you want to potentially tuck away a little bit of savings before you enter into a, 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 the possibility of children. Um, and so it's a given, I think, both in the broader culture and I think it's a given in the broader evangelical uh, subculture as well. And so there's that one observation, but I want to pair it with this other observation. And it's that the entirety of church history up until about 1930 was unequivocally and unambiguously opposed to contraception. And I know we're Protestants, uh, we're Bible people, we want to go to the Bible, but I also think as Baptists, we we trace ourselves as a part of the great tradition, and we want to care about what the witness and the moral witness of tradition has to say uh, to the present day. Um, so what do you do with, I guess, the uncritical embrace on the one hand, paired with this reality that the church up until 1930 was speaking unequivocally against it. I mean, are are we living downstream from the 1930s? Are we in grievous error? I mean, do we need to go back to pre-1930s Christianity? Uh, I mean, what do we do with the with the witness and the weight of church history against the last 80 to 90 years? You know, your story is the same as my story. You know, we were in the same boat. We got married at 24, and it was just a given, you know, in fact, recommended by you know, people in the church, it's just kind of, this is what you do and uh, use contraception, you know, just for the exact same reasons you, you gave out. I, I will say, um, you never have enough money to have children. That's absolutely like, that's true. That's not possible. Still don't. Um, yeah. You know, and after you have multiple children, you, you look back and you say, how did we ever afford to do that? And <laughs> how do we afford to move forward? You know, so that like the people who talk about wanting to save money for children, it's just, it's just not a reality. I don't, you could be a millionaire and you could look at it and say, we don't have enough money to, to raise a child. I will say this, it does affect, it, it is interesting to see this effect moving down the road. You know, you and I break the trend. You got married at 21, I got married at 24. Um, now granted, I've been married for 15 years now, but the, uh, the average age of first marriage in the United States today is over 29 years old for a man and over right. 27 year old, years old for a woman. And so people are getting married much later, yet still embracing the contraceptive mindset. Well, and you can't have those later marriages without contraception in the culture because individuals in their late teens and 20s are going to want to have sex, and there's going to be a desire for that. And so it's only contraception that allows that to occur without the possibility of children, which then delays the need to enter marriage if you are able to have sex outside of marriage. Yeah, and especially considering the fact that it's about two-thirds of all women in the United States have been in a cohabiting relationship. So, I mean, they are, they're in a so non-marital, sexually active relationship. Um, so, yeah, that, that contraceptive mindset makes that possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is interesting to look back, though, pre-1930. So, 1930 is the, the Lambeth Conference. Um, where basically the Anglicans determine that they're going to accept contraceptives. Um, prior to that, what's really interesting, you know, we, we've been talking about the Catholic Church's role in this, but particularly in the United States, it was actually Protestants, conservative Protestants, whether you can label them specifically as evangelicals or not is up to your definition of how you, 
you know, where evangelicals come from, but mm-hmm. certainly people who might be considered uh, fundamentalists, not in the pejorative sense, but in the, the classic turn of the 20th century sense, they were actually the ones leading the charge against contraception. So you take somebody like Anthony Comstock, if you're familiar with Comstock Laws, those were the anti-pornography, anti-indecency, and anti-contraceptive laws that were on the books in the United States. Um, so Comstock was doing that in the, the late 1800s, early 1900s. And, uh, and so th- those things were being led by non-Catholics. And then even within our own Southern Baptist circles, you know, you can go on, the S- on SBC.net mm-hmm. and look at the resolutions that came out of the Southern Baptist Convention and there's a specific resolution in 1934 that states specifically that we're rejecting pending legislation before Congress because its purpose is to make possible and provide for the dissemination of information concerning contraceptives and birth control. Whatever the intent and motive of such a proposal, we cannot but believe that such legislation would be vicious in character and would prove seriously detrimental to the morals of our nation. And so they're, we're putting that within our own Southern Baptist context there mm-hmm. that in 1934, the convention passes a resolution opposed to even the dissemination of information about birth control. Um, then you fast forward 40 years, you get into the 70s, and basically the only opposition from Southern Baptist is against distributing contraceptives without, to minors without parental consent. So you're saying there was so a, a shift. complete there was a change. Shift. Yeah. 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 What do you think accounts for that that 40-year shift in opinion that was able to uh, impact? The availability of the pill. The, okay. Cheap, readily accessible, and effective contraception. And, and the sexual revolution. I mean, these the sexual revolution and the introduction of the pill come hand in hand. So I was actually, that's one of the questions I was going to ask you is, is tease that relationship and connection out? Why do these go hand in glove? Well, part of it is their timing. You know, the the timing of the release of the pill, which is around 1960, the start of the sexual revolution, starting right there around 1960 as well. Um, the, the pill made the sexual revolution possible because it eliminated the, um, the consequence of unwed pregnancy, mm-hmm. um, which was, in many respects, the even though even people who didn't have a biblical understanding of sexual ethics, they may still look at it and say, you know what, I, I just don't, I don't want to get my girlfriend pregnant. Or a girl may say, I, I, I just don't want to get pregnant, so I'm gonna, we're going to avoid sexual intercourse. Well, with readily available, cheap, and very effective contraception, that's not a worry anymore. Mm-hmm. And so then you move into this sex without consequences type uh, type perspective, which is a misnomer definitionally because there's oh, always no. yeah it's like the term safe sex like that's a that's a yeah. euphemistic misnomer used to convey something that's fundamentally not true uh, right. because there's always a consequence whether it's emotional relational physical I mean there's there's always some type of implication from when um, a couple. Uh, has intercourse. So we've been discussing kind of more practical side of things. I want to dial back to kind of the theoretical 30,000-foot level, and that is kind of distinguishing kind of at the macro level 
how Protestants have viewed contraception versus how Catholics have viewed contraception. And again, we discussed from the 19 up to the 1930s, there was pretty much uh, univocal consensus. Where would those differences be mapped today uh, in our culture between Protestants and Catholics? Yeah, Protestants through and through. So from both the the man and woman in the pew all the way through leadership, for the most part, you're going to see among Protestants a an acceptance of contraception. Um, there there are oftentimes limitations, you know, avoiding things like uh, so-called emergency contraceptives, you know, the morning after pill type stuff, um, and abortion as a as a contraceptive or birth control means. I'm being loose with my language. Contraception actually is something that prevents conception. Birth control is prevention of birth. Um, but uh, but you would see you would see this kind of broad acceptance of contraception by Protestants top to bottom across the denominations mm-hmm. um, with, you know, a few outliers, you know, people like me, you know, that are, that are out there that are not, they're not broadly accepting this. Within the Catholic church though, what you find is from the, you know, from Rome, um, from the Vatican and from those in leadership, particularly in the more ardently Catholic parts of the world, um, there's still a um, opposition, strong opposition to uh, birth control in the line of uh, humanae vitae. But among Catholics in the pew, you would find that their attitudes toward it are probably much more like your average Protestant in the pew as well, particularly in America. The practice is, is not necessarily what the, the doctrine of the church is. Now there are those there I would say there are more Catholics who are in America who are faithfully practicing a um, a form of sexual ethic within marriage that would avoid you know the contraceptive pill and, and all that kind of stuff than there are Protestants uh, but still your average Catholic is going to be more of your typical American mindset mm-hmm. imagine that you were the Protestant Pope for a day which obviously is <laughs> we don't have one. We don't I have one. That. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, but imagine, imagine a hypothetical scenario where you were the Protestant Pope, and you had the ability to issue uh, an encyclical to evangelical Protestants today. What would you counsel, or would would you write in that edict as far as counseling evangelicals towards a prohibitionist stance on contraception to a all-out acceptance? or a kind of third-way, cautious, introspective evaluation? What would you advise with that question? You know, I, I, I would be, you know, I'm violating all of my ecclesiological beliefs to, to, <laughs> to answer, answer this, this question. question. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I would, I would certainly, I, I have a tendency, the way that I approach this in class, uh, that's how I would approach this, is... I would be kind of the cautiously introspective, but but very open about some of the the implications, both theological and physiological, of widespread use of particularly hormonal contraceptives. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the pill or the mm-hmm. patch, or or some kind of injection or something like that. Um, and I would also I would also warn against any form of uh, contraception 
that uh, functions in a way that would eliminate human life after conception. Right. And this is the this is the very tricky and difficult place because if you read the fine print of the birth control pill and how it functions, it has three basic functions to prevent ovulation, to build up the mucus at the cervix to prevent a sperm from getting in contact with an egg, mm -hmm. and to thin the lining of the endometrium so that a fertilized egg cannot implant in the uterus. Right. Which and is a question of whether it's an abortifacient. Exactly. And now the problem is, we don't know from month to month which, which function is preventing childbirth at that moment. And so that's why, that's why I have this, I have a very frank conversation in my classes about this. And I, I lay it all out to him and said, you know, I can't make a decision for you, but I'm, I'm laying this out for you. This is how the pharmaceutical companies say that it works. And you are going to have to evaluate in your own life, are you comfortable with that? Mm -hmm. For me and my wife, the answer was no. Right. And, um, and so that's where, that's, that's where I lead them. And that's how, that's how I would do something if I had the opportunity to, to speak to you know, Protestants as a whole on this issue. And I, and I know every semester where I have this discussion in class, I probably don't convince more than about 15 or 20% of the students in my class, but I hear them the ones that I do convince, mm -hmm. I hear from them down right. the road. And honestly, one of the best things I hear from them is, you know, a few months later, I'll have one come by my office and say, you know, I, I listened to what you said in class when you talked about contraception. I went home, talked to my wife about it. We kind of evaluated what we're doing, and my wife is now pregnant, <laughs> and we're expecting a baby. You know, and they say, we thought about it, and we realized we were not comfortable with this anymore. And now we're excited. We were preventing having a child, and are we nervous? Yes. Do we have enough money to make this happen? Absolutely not. But are we excited mm -hmm. that we have the opportunity to be parents? And the answer is yes. So this last major question is a more pastoral question. Let's imagine a scenario where you're pastoring and you are counseling a young couple in the run-up to their marriage, and they're asking you about the morality of contraception. You know, a lot of pastors listen to this podcast. Um, what advice would you give to pastors as far as how they are counseling church members to think through this issue? Uh, be honest with them. Be honest with the way that contraception works. Be honest with the, the perspective of how the world views children, that we view children as a burden, not as a blessing. Mm -hmm. And so we need to undo that and let them know, you know what? If you get pregnant on your honeymoon, it's okay. Right, right. <laughs> there's, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, if, if you know that in many respects, this is in God's hands. Yeah. And and so we need to trust God, and and that we can move forward. But you know, do children change your life? Absolutely. Would I trade any of my children for more money in my bank account, more time to travel the world? Not in a second. Right. I mean, I you know, for all of the the joy and heartache, for all the fun and frustration that children bring, I wouldn't trade them for anything. Absolutely. And it's it's the old adage that the best things in life are truly free. And you can't put a price tag on the the beauty and the glory and the wonder 
of having of having children and then when they're actually present realizing that the good of children actually outweighs all of the concerns that were weighing down the heart prior to the reality of children mm-hmm. and i mean i also look at it from the perspective of being able to enjoy them while you're young yeah too right that it's a lot easier to go out and throw the baseball with your son when you're 30 than it is when you're 45. Sure. So, Okay, well, that concludes the substantive part of this interview. We always end every interview with some rapid-fire fun questions so that listeners can just kind of get an idea of who you are as a person, not just as a scholar and a thinker. These are rapid-fire fun questions that you're not supposed to give a lot of thought to. Just uh, answer as the thoughts come to your head. So here we go. The can top, I answer baseball to every one of them? You, uh, Not every one of them, but for some ah, of them, okay. for sure. All right. Okay, so top three desert island movies. Oh, you know, I'm not a movie guy. Okay. You mean to move on to the next question? So, yeah, I, I really, I, we don't watch a whole lot of movies, and generally it's whatever my wife picks. Gotcha. So. Uh, top three desert island books. Um, this is going to sound really strange, but the one that I'm listening to right now um, that I think is very fitting for Desert Island is Moby Dick. Um, <laughs> maybe there's hope to get on a boat and attach myself to a whale somewhere. Um, I, I think also the having having a copy of God's Word, particularly the Proverbs, hmm. um, would be really nice. Um, and then and then I, I I just need something fun to read, and I'm I'm trying to. I'm trying to think what that would be, and I can't think off the top of my head, but it's something to keep, that would be lighthearted. A a Nolan Ryan biography, perhaps. Perhaps, yes. (laughs) What's a recent purchase you've made that has revolutionized an area of your life? A recent purchase that revolutionized, we bought a new minivan. Okay, yeah, that'll do it. You know, a a family of six, you know, you got to have the swagger wagon. Yeah. So, there you go. Uh, Favorite Christian writer? Favorite Christian writer? Uh, you know, someone who is who, who has been who is influential early. Well, I mean, I'm so I'm not supposed to think about these, and so I'm I'm now I'm now in a hole. Um, I, I, I read a lot of ethics, and so um, I, I read some a good bit of John Frame. Yeah. Um, I read, uh, I like reading contemporary stuff. I'm reading a lot of, uh, Ryan Anderson lately. And so give Ryan a shout out there. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, those guys, that's what I'm reading right now. That's kind of where my mind is. Sure. All right. What are personal hobbies? Personal hobbies, watching baseball. Okay. Um, I take, we, we go to baseball games. We have, we have season tickets to the Rangers and, um, they're not very good right now, but it's still absolute fun. I get to take my kids individually to games That's and that nothing beats nothing beats spending three hours watching a baseball game with one-on-one with a child and then my wife and I go to individually and then we'll a few times a year combine some tickets and take all six of us to one game that's great that's that's what I do with my time okay any useless talents useless talents um I can uh play my college's alma mater on kazoo (laughs) That's actually the that's the best answer I've heard of these types of questions I've asked other people. That's fantastic. It was the abs- it, it's it's a useless talent, but I led uh, new student orientation my junior and senior year in college, and so I taught all of the freshmen incoming freshmen for those two years how to play the alma mater on kazoo. 
So there are hundreds of, of fellow Mississippi College Choctaws out there who ought to be able to do the same thing I can do. That's great. Where would you go in a time machine? Where would I go in a time machine? Um, you know, I, I love early American history. So I think I would go to the, you know, late 1700s yep. and just be able to want to want to walk amongst some of the movers and shakers of the founding of the United States. That's one of my top as well. Uh, if you could meet anyone through history, who would it be? <sighs> Anybody in history. I, I wrote my dissertation on Thomas Aquinas. Oh, okay. And I think I would go back to the, the 13th century and just sit there and listen to him talk. Fascinating. A brilliant mind and, uh, and his ability to, to write the things that he wrote in the, in the medieval period is just amazing. Okay, if you had $10 million and you won the lottery and you had 30 seconds to decide what you would do, what would you do? This is a religious podcast, so I'd have to give a lot to the church, right? Sure. Um, <laughs> I would, I would, uh, I would probably um, all the debts, like mortgage and stuff like that, that I had. I'm a, uh, you know, I hold the chair of stewardship at Southwestern. Sure, sure. Um, and then, uh, and then I think I would probably spend the rest of it trying to buy the Rangers some new pitching. Okay, that's a good answer. Um, because because we're we're pretty terrible on the mound right now. All right. Your last question is, what's your ideal day? My ideal day is um, one that I can have some some time of quiet reflection um, and uh, and just alone time. I'm kind of a loner a little bit, you know, at the beginning of the day. And then then spend some time with my kids and wife um, and uh, and then celebrate at the end of the day a uh, a World Series championship. <laughs> Very good answer. I'm working baseball into as many of these as I can. I like I'm- that. Well, uh, Dr. Uh, Evan Lino, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Counter Moves. I hope it was a challenging and encouraging a, a conversation that really uh, provided some new insights for how people might think um, about the purpose of sexuality and how they would order their marriages. So I want to thank you for uh, taking an hour out of your day to chat with us and uh, hope to talk to you soon. All right. Thanks for having me on. 